Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Deeper Truth Show, the number one rated religious program on Block Talk Radio. Tonight's special program is a debate between John Testis and our own John Benko. Here is the format for tonight's debate. The two opponents will start by giving brief personal introductions up to three minutes. John Testis will go first. Following this, John Benko will give a 10-minute opening statement. We will then take a brief commercial break. When we return, John Pistis will offer a 5-minute rebuttal, followed by his own 10-minute statement. We will then take a second commercial break. When we return, John Benko will give his 5-minute rebuttal. After this, we will proceed to the question and answer session. Each participant will offer four questions in an alternating order, beginning with John Pistis. Answers not to exceed two minutes with a single optional one-minute rebuttal. We will then take our third and final commercial. We will then offer closing statements up to three minutes. John Pistis will go first. If time allows, we will take your calls with questions or comments. Without further delay, let's welcome to the program for his introduction, ladies and gentlemen, John Pistis. Shalom, and to all people who are listening, my name is John Fistis, and I am glad to be part of this uh, debate on transubstantiation. I have been, uh, I was a Roman Catholic for just almost 40 years. I was, went to a Catholic high school for four years. I was a lay minister. I was an altar boy. I grew up in a family which was very Roman Catholic, uh, went through all the sacraments, was very uh, devout, and my uh, uh, in the Roman Catholic uh, institution, Catholicism, and uh, married even in the Catholic Church. Everything went through all that. 
uh, as a Roman Catholic, studied the, the catechism and various things. I also am in ministry full-time uh, since uh, I became born again about 14 years ago. I have studied, received a master's degree in divinity. I'm now currently working on a doctorate degree in theology and pastoral ministry, and uh, I have uh, served overseas in various different places as evangelist and missionary. I spent uh, three years in Central America as a missionary full-time, seeing many people uh, saved, over a thousand people saved, uh, planted a couple churches, established a couple more, taught pastors, uh, at least about 13, 14 pastors monthly on the Word of God. I have uh, fed poor weekly, uh, taught Bibles, studies, uh, various different things, been in ministry for approximately uh, about uh, 12 years now. Uh, I've been in ministry approximately, yeah, about uh, 10 years full-time as a ministry, leaving previous work in electronics as an engineer. And, uh, again, uh, it was I became born again in the year 2000. Uh, I studied the, the scriptures of the Word of God, which, which actually it was enlightened to by the revelation of the Word and compared them to the various different Roman Catholic doctrines, Vatican I, II, Council of Trent, the Catechism, and other dogmas, and uh, eventually the Holy Spirit of God led me to uh, become truly born again, or as in the Greek, born from above. And I uh, basically, after that moment, uh, there was a true transformation within. Right. After that, I uh, got... John, you, you already passed your three minutes, man. Okay, sorry. Oh, that's okay. John? And now introducing himself, John Finko. Well, hello everyone and welcome back to Deeper Truth for another debate. Very much looking forward to this debate with John Pistis. First of all, I am a married man, married almost 29 years, father of three adult living children and one in heaven. We formed this little apostolate called Deeper Truth in 2009 where we defend the faith, the Roman Catholic faith, the faith founded by Jesus Christ. I will take issue with a number of things that my opponent said, uh, but we don't have time to get into Vatican I and Vatican II and the Council of Trent. Obviously, I define being born again or born from above different than he does. I define it as the early church fathers founded it. Uh, they defined being born again as simply being baptized, simple water baptism. And we're going to get into a lot of things uh, a lot of things tonight on this doctrine of transubstantiation. And we're going to talk about equivocation. We're going to talk about defining things differently than the original church defined them. And uh, I think it's going to be a very, very interesting debate, and I look forward to it. All right. Then, well, the one thing I want to make a point of, when you get to the uh, 30-second mark, when we're getting close to the end of the mark, what you're both going to hear is a kind of a siren like this. Well, that's that's that, you're going to hear that at the very end. That time's up, but okay. I'm going to give you a 30-second heads up 
you got 30 seconds left. And then that, that means that uh, we are uh, your time is up. <laughs> so I'll okay. try to. Uh, so I believe that uh, John. Uh, now tonight we got John and John tonight. <laughs> and, yeah. And so this is going to be interesting. So we got John Banco and John Pesses, and both of you uh, made agreements. So John Banco, you're the first, right? Correct. And uh, so are you ready to rock and roll? I am. All right. Five, four, three, two, one, go. The irony that will be made manifest tonight is that my opponent who claims to adhere to the precept of Sola Scriptura will be attempting to make a case that cannot be made biblically. The case that the bread and wine of consecration do not become the actual body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is exceedingly, even frighteningly clear that they do. Here is a clear example of why I laugh out loud when evangelicals have the temerity to accuse Catholics of having teachings contrary to Scripture. Nowhere is there a teaching more contrary to Scripture than the teaching that transubstantiation is false. In John's Gospel, Jesus says that his flesh is real food and his blood is real drink, and he who does not eat his flesh and drink his blood has no life in him. The verbiage Jesus uses is extraordinarily blunt. The Greek word tragon actually means to crunch, grind, or gnaw between the teeth. Jesus is leaving no room for doubt here. The many disciples who walked away were clear about what he was saying. Jesus affirmed it four times. Neither is Paul any less clear in chapters 10 and 11 of his first letter to the Corinthians, when he boldly states that the bread and wine are an actual participation in the body and blood of Jesus, and that he who eats the bread and drinks the wine unworthily is guilty of profaning the actual body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. As if that were not far enough, Paul warns us that to eat and drink the bread and the cup without recognizing it as Christ's body is to eat and drink judgment on oneself. These teachings are clear and unambiguous, and the Catholic Church's proclamation on them is unassailable. These are the facts, and nothing my opponent will say tonight will alter that. I could stop now and the Catholic side would win this debate. Unfortunately for my opponent, I am not going to stop now. The teaching of the Eucharist is not confined to John's gospel and Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. It reverberates all through scripture from Genesis to Revelation as typology, fulfillment, and prophecy. Further, much to the consternation of my worthy adversary, it is the consistent and infallible teaching of every generation of Christianity, a fact he would like very much to suppress, and pretend away. Tonight's debate is not about what the Bible and the history of the church teach on the subject. That is a closed case. My opponent will not even attempt to counter the early church's teaching on this matter. He would rather not that not even be discussed, and he has said as much. Further, his biblical word parsing is going to be seen for what it is, desperation. The case against transubstantiation can be made logically or philosophically to a degree, but it cannot be made even a little biblically or historically. No, tonight's debate is already settled on the ground of what, the, what guidance the mind of the church and the Holy Scriptures have left to us. Tonight's debate is about faith. You either have it or you don't. If you have it, you say our Lord settles it, or our Lord said it, that settles it. If you do not have it, you say Jesus didn't really say it, or Jesus said it, but he didn't really mean it. There is no Jesus. What is the difference? They are only different degrees of the same unbelief. Denial of the Eucharist is denial of the Christian faith. 
and the creation of a new Jesus who is not the bread from heaven that the Jesus of John 6 clearly states himself to be. Like I said, you either believe him or you don't. There is no middle ground here. My opponent claims to follow the Bible, but he clearly does not understand the Bible. If he did, he would see as a foreshadowing of the Eucharist in the Passover. After the Passover lamb, an obvious typology of Jesus was slain, it was eaten. He would see a typology in the manna, the bread from heaven, which again the believers ate. He would recognize that in John 6, it is no coincidence that the miracle of the multiplication of loaves directly precedes the bread of life discourse. In this discourse, Jesus announces the starkly clear reality of Eucharist as a direct answer to the direct question of John 6.30, quote, what sign are you going to give us then so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? My opponent, if he understood scripture, would see the reference that Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek in Hebrews 7. It was Melchizedek that scripture tells us brought forth the bread and the wine. My opponent, if he understood scripture as he states, would see the Eucharist as the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19. My opponent sees none of these things because he lacks the light that comes from faith and cannot get past his own lying eyes that tell him that what appears to be bread and wine must be bread and wine. Even though Jesus Christ himself said, this is my body, this is my blood. The Greek term is totu esten and cannot be translated as this represents or this is a symbol of. Jesus said it, we believe it, that settles it. Let's bring the focus in closer. Let's really look closely at the question posed to Jesus. What sign are you going to give us then so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? My opponent appears to, uh, adheres to the ideology that stipulates that one must only believe in Jesus to be saved. Yet right here, he is denying the very definitive sign that must be believed, the very specific answer given to Jesus' detractors. Listen carefully to Jesus' own words. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. Close quote. My opponent simply cannot and will not deal with the shockingly direct and blunt words of Jesus here. What my opponent will try to do is to imply that Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. First of all, the text doesn't allow it. Secondly, each time that Jesus spoke in parables, he then explained the parable. Jesus allowed some 60 disciples to walk away over this doctrine, and at every chance to explain it away as a metaphor, he re-emphasized his words instead. Jesus repeatedly spoke in literal terms and took great pains for everyone to know that he was speaking in literal terms. In fact, the one verse my opponent will likely use tonight, tonight to try and spiritize this passage actually emphasizes its literal interpretation. Quote, when many of his disciples heard it, they said this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that the disciples were complaining about it, said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But among you there are some that do not believe. Close quote. Jesus is not contradicting his own words by saying his own flesh is useless. If Jesus were calling his own flesh useless, what value would there be in the crucifixion? No. Jesus is telling us the same truth expressed in Matthew 16. 
the truth that some things are true even when they cannot be perceived by our fleshy senses or comprehended by our fleshy minds. Jesus' words are spirit and truth. He even goes so far as to say that anyone who rejects this literal teaching is the one who does not believe in him. For Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that did not believe and who was the one that would betray him. And he said, for this reason, I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He was speaking of Judas' son, Simon Iscariot, for though he was one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Close quote. So my opponent must know that if he continues to deny the true presence, it is not Jesus who he believes, it is Judas and those who walked away. Paul certainly believed in the true presence. Of that he leaves no doubt. Paul's words to the church in Corinth, the cup of blessing that we bless, it is, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar? What do I imply then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be answerable to, for the body and blood of our Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat the bread and drink the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. Close quote. My opponent wants you to believe that we are misinterpreting the words of John and, and Paul, but history is not kind to his assertions. The very first prominent figure to deny it was Ulrich Zwingli in 1525. My opponent has a clear choice. He can accept the clear word of Scripture and roughly 2,000 years of clear Christian teaching that affirm the true presence. Or he can accept roughly 500 years of heresy that is wholly rooted in a lack of belief. Make no mistake, to deny the Eucharist is to deny Christ. This concludes my opening statement. We are now going to go to our first commercial break. And then when we come back, then John Pistis will be able to, he will give a five-minute rebuttal. We will be right back on Deeper Truth. Let's face it, not all who claim they can debate actually can. Some come off sounding quite ridiculous. There are two gods, one god and two gods, yes. There are two gods... 
one God and two gods, yes. But if you know someone who does know how to debate, and that person disagrees with the views of the Catholic Church, why don't you give them our email address, email at deepertruthblog.com. So, so you're, you're saying there's two gods? There are two gods, one God and two gods, yes. You're trying to split hairs here. There are two gods, one God and two gods, yes. You're trying to split hairs here. But the mute. So, so you're, you're, you're saying there's two gods? There are two gods, one God and two gods, yes.
All right, I'm Donald Hartley, and I am the moderator for tonight. And what we have now is John Pistis, who is going to give his five-minute rebuttal. John, are you about ready? Yes, I am. All right. Let me get uh, this clock ready. You ready? Five, four, three, two, one, go. Well, I want to thank... uh John Benko for his points. Uh, he's been some valid points and valid scripture, and that was very commendable. But uh, basically, this debate was on the idea and the basis of transubstantiation, and he failed to discuss anything of the roots and the specifics of the specifics of the word. And I want to quote in uh, the Catechism of Paragraph 1376. So basically, the Council of Trent summarized the Catholic faith by declaring, "Because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly His body and His." was offering under species of bread. It has always been the conviction of the Church of God. The Holy Council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there plays an actual change of the whole actual substance of the bread into the actual substance of the body of Christ and Lord of the actual whole substance of the wine into the actual substance of his blood. This change, the Holy Catholic Church, has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. Now, where does this word transubstantiation come from? Well, Jerome brought about, not actually brought the word transubstantiation, but he brought it out in Epistion, which is hapax, a word that's only used there, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit, but the actual word transubstantiation was not used as a term, as it is a word, until it was given uh, by Hildebert de Laverdin, the Archbishop of Tours, in the 11th century, and this is from the book by John Colbert Headley called The Holy Eucharist, came out in 2003. And also, sometimes uh, Roman Catholics quote the Didache, but in the Didache chapter 9 about the Eucharist, and we know by the original Greek, Eucharist is basically means, the word means in the Greek, thanksgiving. And even through there, I will prove, and later in my little 10-minute uh, dissertation, that is talking about, you know, uh, uh, when it comes to transubstantiation, it's not there again. There is, there is no, uh, uh, bear with me a minute. It still remained bread is what my point is. And the point is he also talked about going back to the Passover during that time. Oh, let me continue on with Jerome about the transubstantiation. So, again, in Jerome, when he was there, that was actually, uh, he, he was living from any time from where uh, 300 to the 4th century. So, and at that point with him, he talked about the Arton Epistion, or as Panis Quotidianum, and basically it was basically translated as supersubstantialum. So, in other words, he talked about these things, but again, he lived from in the fourth century, in 380 or so to 420. So, again, even with Jerome, this was something that was that wasn't even talked about nor mentioned during the time of the first century, and so. Biblically, when we look at transubstantiation, there is nothing in there where, according to the Roman Catholic Church, paragraph 1376 of the Catechism, it basically says there's an actual, literally physical change of substance. And so one of the main points I have is, is also is that is when you know, he talks about, when Jesus was talking about his blood and speaks of the blood of the covenant in the New Testament, it was about the covenant in his blood. The scriptures are unanimous in saying that the blood of the new covenant is the blood of the cross. And it plainly teaches that. And after, 30 seconds. And after he talked about 
the, he will not drink the body, blood, heart, when Jesus first of the cup there, and he says, I will not drink again the fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Does he literally say blood? No. He says the fruit of the vine, and that he says he will not drink it again until he would drink it with the disciples in his Father's kingdom. Does this mean that Jesus was still transubstantiating wine into his blood into the kingdom of God? No. We must point out that the contradictions and errors that come as a result of the method of interpretation and interpreting wrongly John 6 and other scriptures. Thank you. Okay, that's good. All right, uh, then uh, now, John, you have 10 minutes to bring out your uh, opening statement, and then we will go to a second commercial break. So are you ready for your opening statement? Yes. Okay, we'll do it in 10. So, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, go. Thank you. Again, as I said earlier, the, the whole point of this debate is to look at the term transubstantiation. Again, as it was referred in the, uh, the, excuse me, the Catechism 1376, when it goes back to the Council of Trent, is where it initially comes, and of course the Vatican supports the Council of Trent. Again, they say that it was uh, actually changes, literally changes the actual elements or the substances of the body into the actual literal body of Christ and the actual wine into the actual blood of Christ. So this is the problem with this. And I spoke in the text. Uh, excuse me, I want to talk about a little bit about Dr. Brent Petrie, who was on the show there recorded earlier, and he mentioned a few things, and he said uh, uh, this is done, he was talking about uh, Exodus chapter 13, 8, and 9, and he was comparing, I think John Benko talked about that, comparing the, uh, uh, the, the communion with the Eucharist and everything, he was saying goes back to the Passover. Well, I challenge him and challenge anybody, when you look into Exodus, the issue with Exodus is this, is that the fact that it wasn't about the actual eating. They did have to eat the lamb. But the key is, think about this. If there was firstborn children there, it was to, the angel of death was to come over and pass over that home. But what about a baby? Say a baby was only, you know, three months old. That baby sure can't eat the whole lamb. So what happens is, the key thing, if you look in the scripture of Exodus, when we look into that, it was the fact that it was the blood. The angel of death did not was concerned about who ate the lamb, although that is part of eating the lamb, but it was more concerned about the blood of Jesus Christ. And it typically it says there in the Passover, you shall eat and hate, but it says in Exodus chapter uh, 12, verse, verses 7 through 14, I'm going to go look into a particular verse. It says that now... It says in uh, Southern 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on the night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and the beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood, verse 13, Now the blood shall be assigned to you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day should be to you a memorial, memorial, remembrance. That key word memorial is remembrance. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generation. You should keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. And remember this now. There was no Levitical priest at the time of Israel living in Egypt. Initially, it was after when Moses brought deliverance out of there. 
So the Passover did not happen the night before at the la- the Passover didn't happen the night before at the Last Supper. They started the Passover. The lamb was not or, or Christ was not sacrificed until after the Seder meal. So there it is. So when we talked about this, when he said, this is my body, he was talking, again, John Bengals and Greaves, but he was speaking metaphorically. Just as Jesus used the parables, Jesus also used when he said he was a door. Well, he, was he literally a door? No. In Matthew, Jesus also talked about that whoever I caused the sin to pluck the eye out. And he also said, if your hand caused the sin, cut your hand off. Well, I don't see too many people with the eyes plucked out and a hand come up. If, if you take that literally as well as many do in John 6. Throughout John 6, it was about believing. It was about understanding that he was going to the cross. He was not sacrificed yet on the cross. His blood was not shed. So how could they actually even drink the blood if it wasn't even poured out yet? So to take that scripture out of context is improper, using improper hermeneutics and exegesis. And again, it was the blood that they saw when it comes to when it came to the fact that it was the sacrifice that Jesus was going to do, and the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. So also, when he talks about, when I talk about the covenant, it's about the blood, when I mentioned that earlier. Luke 22:20 says, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. You know, Mark 14, Matthew 24, Luke 20, talk about that. Mark 14, 8, she has done what she could. She has come before you to anoint my body for burial. And he was talking about that. And then later it talks about Mark 14, 22, and 24, to so take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, which he had given thanks. He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said, this is the, my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for Mary. So Jesus, right there, his blood was still not even gone to the cross yet. So there was no way at the time of the Passover Seder meal that he could have actually even drank the blood. It could not have been possibly done. And many who don't understand walked away because in Leviticus, it talks about you shall never drink or eat the blood of the sacrifice because it's a perpetual, perpetual ordinance by God who said not to ever eat the blood. And so those people, the Jews who were Jews, understand the Old Testament, which they had then. They knew what they were saying. You cannot eat the blood. So many walked away misunderstanding. But as they, if they understood because they, they thought it was literally. But now Jesus was speaking spiritually. He says in John 63, the words I speak are spiritual. And many people uh, did not understand that. And the fact that if he didn't tear off a piece of his arm and give it to people to eat, it didn't happen. And they even actually went into the cross. They never cooked him as they were supposed to cook the lamb. And the Passover said it. They did not cook him. They took him off the cross. They put him in the ground. And eventually he rose from the grave. And even for Jesus and anyway, and for the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, it still remained bread. And for at least 60 to at least the first century, and as I have said already, Jerome and the Didache never mentioned that it was an actual change, never used the word transubstantiation until the 11th century, and nobody, not one apostle ever in Acts and throughout the first New Testament churches ever had any priest requirement or wrote about it or actually consecrated any type of bread and any type of wine to become the actual physical change as the Catechism and the Council of Trent declares that it actually changed substance. This is the key about this debate. John Bingo has not even attempted to look at this yet. I hope he does. But the bottom line is transubstantiation does not exist in the Bible, not at all. The word and the fact that it never actually changed substance, which is transubstantiation. And according to the Canon 1, anybody who disagrees with that is an anthema or basically accursed and should be put to death according to some of the definitions, but that's different. But anyway, the bottom line is 
When John 6 spoke, when Jesus spoke, he was talking about he came down, he was, and he mentioned in John 6, it was about believing in him, having faith and believing and trusting in him, that he was beginning to come, the Lamb of God, who shed his blood on the cross. Again, the covenant was all about the blood. And he didn't have that drink of that cup till later. So when we look at this, it doesn't say eat the body of Christ or drink his blood, but when the person eats and drinks unworthily, it's said that he's eating bread and drinking of the cup. Each time it is the bread and wine, not body and blood. Again, nobody, not one apostle, deemed it. And can you imagine such a critical thing in the Catholic Church as called the Eucharist, which technically in the Greek means Thanksgiving. It doesn't mean anything about breaking bread or anything of that nature. But the fact that they declared something in the 11th century, the actual use of the word, and Jerome calling a super substantiation, the funny question is that nobody, apostle or anybody, ever said, ever practiced transubstantiation, ever did that. But the whole time the New Testament was being recorded by the apostles, and it continues that for at least a century, and even in Didache, it still remained, still remained wine. So the key point to this whole debate is the fact that it's based on the word transubstantiation, and again, the key was that he didn't even go to the cross yet. He didn't actually physically change it, and this is the premise I'm standing on. Transubstantiation does not exist. His body and his blood never changed. Uh, the body, excuse me, the wine and the bread never changed to his actual uh, physical body and blood uh, as it's declared in the catechism going back to the Council of Trent. And this is my uh, opening comments. Thank you. Hello? All right. Well, we will go to our second commercial break, and when we come back, John will give John Benko. I remember I got two Johns here. <laughs> I got two Johns. So I've got John Benko that's going to come and give his five minute rebuttal after this uh, commercial break. We will be right back on Deeper Truth. Hello, the time has come for the fans and followers of DeeperTruthBlog.com and the Deeper Truth Radio Show to come together and ask the folks over at Proclaiming the Gospel why they are so afraid to debate an informed Catholic. Could it be that their lies will be easily refuted? It's time to bombard them with this question. Please email them at info at proclaimingthegospel.org or call them at 972-495-0485. Again, that's info at proclaimingthegospel.org, and the phone number is 972-495-0485. We're asking for all of the fans at deepertruthblog.com to bombard them, to inundate them with this question until they finally grow a spine and debate us with the real gospel, not the false gospel that they proclaim. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into this live debate on Deeper Truth. To know more about Deeper Truth, go to our website at deepertruthblog.com. That's deepertruthblog.com. The purpose of Deeper Truth is to defend the Catholic faith and to equip Catholics to defend that faith themselves. That's DeeperTruthBlog.com. We hope you enjoy. Now that the Lord has 
Jesus, I trust in you. That's Donna Corey Gibson. I really love her music. I'm Donald Hartley, the Catholic Defender, and we are now at the portion where John Banco gives his five-minute rebuttal. And so, John, are you ready? I am. All right. Give me uh, just a few moments. Just a few moments here. All right. Again with five, four. Three, two, one, go. My opponent's very confused about what tonight's debate is about, so I'm going to set him straight. The debate tonight is not about the word transubstantiation. It's about the doctrine of transubstantiation. I don't care if the word was invented in the 11th century. I don't care if it was invented yesterday. Now, let me give you, before we move on, let me give you a couple of other words that are not in the Bible. Trinity is not in the Bible. Christmas is not in the Bible. Incarnation is not in the Bible. Oh, and by the way, Bible is not in the Bible. To to make the argument that transubstantiation is not true because the word is not in the Bible is really a pretty silly argument. Now, he said that the apostles didn't believe in transubstantiation and the early church fathers didn't believe in it too. Well, (laughs) we're going to see about that later on. As for the apostles not believing in it, I already gave you the words of Paul. The cup of blessing that we bless, is this not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, it is is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? There's transubstantiation right there. When they bless the bread and they bless the cup, it becomes the body and blood of Christ. If it does not, then Jesus Christ lied in John chapter 6. You notice that my opponent, he relied on the early church fathers. He relied on the catechism. But he didn't really touch Scripture that much. He really didn't touch John chapter 6, and he really didn't touch 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Why? Because he can't. Because the words are painfully clear. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. There's no room for metaphor there. Now, John brought up the point that Jesus said he is a door. Well, is he a door? Yes, he absolutely is. Not a door like you have on your house, but he didn't claim to be a door that you have on your house. But we all know that the Bible is very, very clearly that no one comes to the Father but through him. He is the door. Now, every time that Jesus spoke in parables, every time that Jesus spoke in metaphors, he explained the parable or the metaphor. But here, he very, very clearly uses explicit language. He uses the the Greek word trogon is to gnaw or grind between the teeth. Now, he brings up the idea of the Last Supper, the Seder, in which Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. 
And he says, well, it couldn't, he couldn't be speaking literal because he hadn't gone to the cross yet. I would ask my opponent how he thinks the people in the Old Testament were saved. If Jesus' sacrifice can't pass through time, how are the people in the Old Testament saved? Those people who participated in the Mosaic Law by faith were saved by participation in the crucifixion through time. Well, the crucifixion moves backwards. It also moves forwards. Jesus Christ is not is not confined to space and time. I'm sorry that the Catholic Jesus is bigger than John Pistis's Jesus for some reason. Um, he talks about the Passover. He talks about we, we look back to the Passover. The Passover was a foreshadowing. And he says, well, it's not that God wasn't concerned with who ate the Passover. He wasn't. The Passover, it's very, very clear that if you did not eat the Passover, you were cut off from your people. You were cut off. Same thing. You have no life in you unless you eat the Eucharist. It's a clear foreshadowing of the Eucharist. Um, <laughs> Paul says that he who does not eat, eat the bread or drink the cup without discerning the body. To discern means to recognize. In other words, Paul is saying here explicitly that if you do not, if you eat the bread and drink the cup without recognizing it as the body of Christ, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. No words could be any clearer than this. As for his contention that the, that the early church fathers did not teach this doctrine, uh, I'm going to prove that wrong in my closing statement. And that uh, that concludes my rebuttal. I was just getting ready to say 30 seconds. <laughs> All right. Well, this ends the opening statements and the rebuttals uh, for the night's debate. What we have coming up next is the question and answering aspect of it. Each person has four questions, and you have two minutes each to respond to the question, and we will uh, look at if, if uh, you know, we want to kind of go back and forth, we will do that in a limited fashion, no more than a minute. So, according to agreement, John Pestis, you have the first question that you were going to ask John. Okay, thank you. Uh, first question is, uh, basically, uh, you mentioned that uh, that they literally had to eat the actual lamb. Well, I'm, my question is, first of all, uh, as an exodus, uh, I mentioned earlier about the blood, that it was the blood that Jesus saw. Well, answer me this, John, if uh, could a, a firstborn baby, a baby at that time, who was the firstborn, because remember the, the blood, you know, with the firstborn that uh, that could do the Passover, say they had a baby, right, in the family, as the firstborn in, in a family. Mm -hmm. uh, how were they able to eat the whole lamb if they could not? So does that basically, yeah, that's my question. How how can they, you know, and yet they passed over because of the blood. So tell me uh, how a baby here uh, could could have ate that lamb and not have, uh, you know, you know, basically, as you're saying, they had to eat the lamb. Uh, I, I, re yeah. I reject the premise of your question. The ba baby doesn't have to in, e in either the Old Testament or the New Testament because the baby's not guilty. The baby's not capable of mortal sin. So a baby does not have to participate in the Old Testament sacrificial system 
to be uh, relieved of mortal sin, nor participate in the Eucharist in the New Testament sacrificial system in order to be relieved of sin because a baby is incapable of mortal sin. Okay, so so you're, you're telling me that that that's what the whole point was, that the firstborn was to be we'd taken over, would be, would be murdered, would be killed, an angel that passed over, that did not see the blood. So you're telling me, so a baby is not going to be, so you're, you're contradicting scripture there, as far as I'm concerned. I'm contradicting scripture. How am I contra- contradicting scripture? We, we know that a baby is not capable, we know a baby is not capable of eating lamb. Okay. That, that, we also where that in scripture where it says that it was dealing with baby and sin. It doesn't show anything there. It just says whoever's home, about the home, they had to see the blood on the doorstep. That's how the angel would pass over. It didn't say nothing about. And if a baby can't eat it, you're saying you have to. You, basically, you have to prove your premise. You're saying they had to eat. Yet a baby, say a firstborn in the family, could not eat the lamb. So, so how? So you're saying. So how did that baby survive then? Oh, wait, I have to prove my premise? Are you disagreeing that Scripture said that you had to eat the lamb? But you're saying that. Well, I, I'm and saying that's, that's, what, that's what Scripture said. Well, so tell me, how does the baby, that's my question, how does the baby get passed over if he could not eat the lamb? I've already answered your question. I reject, I reject the premise of your question because it's something that obviously wouldn't apply to a baby. If a baby said, if the sacrificial system says you have to offer two rams and a goat for the sacrifice of your sin, would a baby be capable of that? There are certain, th- certain times you got to use common sense, John. No, I'm not looking at common sense. I'm looking at the fact that in the scripture you have to show me where in Exodus it says that uh, that that the person had, uh, you know, the baby was exempt from that. Show me in, in Exodus. No, I don't. No, I don't. No, I don't. I don't have to show you that. You're making a ridiculous ar- argument. No, I'm you not. Don't, you don't you check. Me where. John, John, you don't check your common sense at the door uh, when, when you're when you're in a debate case. You know, a baby is not capable of eating lamb no more than a baby is capable of doing a temple sacrifice. Okay, at, exactly. at this point in time, gentlemen, I go to. The, I mean. This is this is the only thing that I'm just going to step in here. It says, if a family is too small for a whole lamb, it shall be joined. It shall join the nearest household in procuring one, and there and shall uh, share in the lamb in proportion to the number of persons who partake of it. The lamb must right. be a year old male and without blemish. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats, and so it it's really silent when it comes to uh, infants, and so. It's a good question. Uh, the answer is is kind of one of those questions that I don't think either one of you are going to come to an agreement on it. And so, uh, with that in mind, we'll just go to uh, John's sec- uh, first question. Okay. John, the word discern means to recognize the truth. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says to eat and drink the bread and cup without discerning or recognizing the body is to bring judgment on oneself. Now, how else can you possibly interpret this passage? Paul is clearly stating here that it is the body of Christ and you must recognize it as such or you bring or you eat and drink judgment on yourself. How much clearer could Paul be here? All right, well let's look at it in context because you need to use proper hermeneutics like the Jesus in there. And basically what happens is he gives thanks, he broke it and said, take eat. this is my body, which is broken for you, it's remembrance. Do this keyword, remembrance of me. At the same time, 
and he, he said, because of the covenant of my blood, and this is the key word, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is obviously drink it, and remember it's a meat. And then he says in verse 26, key scripture, for as often as you eat this bread, that's B-R-E-A-D, John, bread, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So whoever eats again, 27, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord is unworthy man will be guilty of the body and blood. Why? Because it was the blood covenant. Again, it was his body that went to the cross. The Bible says in Hebrews that without the remission and shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So there's nothing again in there about transubstantiation. Again, the key element we're talking about is transubstantiation. In this debate, again, the fact that there was no actual change of substance, as the Catechism and the, the Council of Trent declared, there's an actual change of substance, and let them be anathema. So I'm saying that there is no change, and the Scripture says and verifies that as well. That's my answer. The scripture Scott, you want to take a minute? Yeah, the scripture says just the opposite, John. It says if you do not discern it as the body, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. You can't get away from the clear words of scripture here. You're trying to do end circles around it, but he says the cup that we bless is the participation in the body. The cup that we drink is a participation in the blood. He who eats the bread and drinks the cup without recognizing it as the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So what he's saying is, while that while it appears to still be bread and and wine, it is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Either you believe it or you don't. Paul's words are clear. There is absolutely no context that. in which. No, the words are clear in context that he's talking about the, the covenant. He's talking about it's still bread and it's still wine. It did not change the actual, literally substance. This is the key. This is the whole premise of the debate. It did not change actual substance. Okay, we're going to have to end it at that point in time. I can tell this is spirited by, on both sides, which is awesome. I appreciate that for both of you. Now, uh, uh, John Pistis, it's your second uh, question. Now, this is dealing with the Eucharist and transubstantiation, and I want to, this question is basically dealing with the, the Eucharist and the worship of it. Uh, we see no indication at all that the disciples worship the elements. The adoration of the Eucharist is practiced during the Mass. Mysterium Fidei, encyclical of Pope Paul VI on the whole Eucharist, September 3, 1965, uh, said basically this in Catholic say, and this thing it says, Moreover, the Catholic Church has held firm to this belief in the presence of Christ's body and blood in the Eucharist, not only in her teaching but in her life as well. Since she has had at all times paid this great sacrament, the worship known as Latria, which may be given to God alone. So the question is, where is the worship given in the sacrament of the disciples anywhere in the New Testament? Where is that found? I've already shown you where it's found in the New Testament, but I'm going to, I'm going to go outside of the New Testament to reemphasize it. This is from St. Justin Martyr from 100 A.D. to 165 A.D. For not as common bread nor common drink do we receive these, but since Jesus Christ our Savior was made incarnate by the Word of God and hath both flesh and blood for our salvation, so too, as we have been taught, the food which has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nourished is both the flesh and the blood of that incarnated Jesus. Now this is his Apology, apology 66. John Mar St. Justin Martyr in 100 A.D. to 165 A.D. 
This is the consistent teaching of the church. I've now shown you from the church. I've now shown you from the scripture. John, it seems like your entire strategy is just to deny, deny, deny the plain words of scripture, but no. you can't get around no, the plain John. words of scripture. Hold on. That wasn't my question. I asked the question, where in the New Testament was there any worship given to the sacrament or to the Eucharist? Where is this actual worship in the New Testament? I didn't ask you about the early church and fathers or just about I asked you, where in the New Testament was there any worship given to that sacrament? John, I've already answered your question. It's right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when it says to eat and drink the, the bread and the wine without recognizing it as the body. You bring judgment on yourself. You profane the body and blood of, of the Lord if you receive it in an unworthy manner. You're eating from that the is, cup of the Lord. You're eating from the cup of the Lord rather than from the cup of demons. How much clearer can it be in the New Testament? The Book of Revelation. You're, you're not answering my question. I'm not talking about the blood. I'm talking about where is there worship given to the Eucharist in the New Testament? Where is this worship? How are you defining? You how are you defining worship? Okay. Are you a Christian, John? Are you a Christian, yes or no? No, I'm answering answering your question. Wait a minute. I'm answering your question. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Jesus Christ is... If he's going to ask me a question, he's got to not talk over me when I try to answer it. Hold on. So, it's okay. John, you can't talk over me when I try to answer your question, Okay. Jesus Christ is someone we worship. I'm a Christian. I worship Jesus Christ. If I recognize the body, the, the bread and the wine as becoming the body and blood of Christ, that is worship. This is clearly what Paul is doing. Paul is saying it is Christ. If you do not recognize it as Christ, you, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. There's your worship right there. You, uh, you seem to want me to come up with some semantic... Uh, no, uh, definition I don't, of worship. I don't it at all, where it says there is worshiping of a of a piece of bread and and a, there's no worship in that at all in the text. So that's what the question is. But anyway, we can move on. You didn't answer it, so that's okay. Yeah, I most certainly did answer it. Uh, it's the next right. question. Well, you guys, you guys are not going to agree on that one, and we we'll let that <laughs> one kind of go back and forth again. John, it's Who's your sure? second commercial. Your second uh, 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 question. Okay. You mean third uh, question, don't you? No. Uh, I, I've only asked. Well, one yeah, question. you were trying. You were trying to ask a question, but that was. Uh, you guys were going back and forth on that particular. I've question, already asked so. questions, Don. We're on the third one now. I've only asked one question. <laughs> well, I've already asked two, so I don't know. Yeah, that's what so I'm saying. It's now Don. time for my second question. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm yeah. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's okay. It's all right. All right. We're on. We're on. Since since no one prior to Zwingli in the 16th century. Uh, no major figure prior to Zwingli in the 16th century can be found disputing the true presence. Can you explain how 15 centuries of Christians failed to see Scripture as you see it? Sure. Okay. Again, the bottom line is, when we look at the term transubstantiation, what was going on, again, throughout the Scriptures, there was not one person that ever, the apostles, for at least a century, it was never mentioned of anybody, know the, know the actual requirement. You know, you would think... In, in the Catholic Church, because the Catholicism is, is very, they uphold the Eucharist and this actual con, uh, change of substance as doctrine, which is an external, extra-biblical, uh, you would think that one of the apostles or somebody would write to any of the New Testament churches or somebody throughout there would actually say the requirement that there had to be 
a priestly requirement, number one, to consecrate. There was never nothing that there. They went from home to home, breaking bread, and doing this in remembrance of what Jesus did on the cross, because it was about the blood, it was about the covenant. So for at least a century, as the whole New Testament was coming, about, coming forth, being written, and all this for many, many decades following this, the apostles yet omitted completely of any type of actual, literal, physical change of substance, of the actual becoming, the actual body and blood. And so this is, you know, the premise. Now, what happens after that? It's just like, for example, when someone gives a word. I remember as a kid, we used to line up, you know, like 15, 20 kids, and they give it one word at the beginning of the line, and by the time it gets to the last person in the line, the, the story and, the, and the, the, whatever was said was completely almost changed and twisted around. You know, so, so just because someone says, you know, a century later or even after, that, oh, maybe, you know, this is, this should be, this is literally, his must have been his body and blood, you know, just because this has become an invention, I believe the Apostle Paul says, wolves will come into and start twisting and changing doctrines. I believe prophetically that is exactly what happened with many of these people, bring up this doctrine, which, again, my impression of the Word of God and understanding hermeneutics, we must go to the source, the authors, those who were there who were eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ, of everything that happened, and go to them as the definitive and extreme, uh, you know, perfect source of truth. And when there's any questions of matters of faith or doctrine, we must go to those who are with Jesus. And again, answering the questions, not one apostle ever transubstantiated, nor had the requirement of consecrating, nor demanded it or declared it in the Scriptures, the New Testament. Thank you. John, you want to respond to that? Yeah, he can keep saying that until he turns blue, but I've already proven that he's incorrect. Let's take St. Ignatius of Antioch, who learned at the who learned at the feet of John. So now, if we're we're arguing about who's properly interpreting John or who isn't properly interpreting John, Saint Ignatius was a was a, a disciple of John. He learned from the feet of John. Here's what Saint Ignatius said: I have no taste for corruptible food, nor for the pleasures of this life. I desire the bread of God, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ, who is the seed of David. And for drink, I desire His blood, which is love incorruptible. That's in his letter to the Romans 7.3. Now, this is from the horse's mouth. This is from somebody who learned from the feet of John the Apostle. And, you know, John wants to keep equivocating, redefining things, and then taking his new novel doctrines and imposing them on, on the church. I got 14 quotes in, in our show notes, deepertruthblog.com, 14 quotes in our show notes that all precede the production of the first Bible. All of these quotes came before the first Bible. Every single one of those quotes affirms the doctrine of transubstantiation. In fact, it's affirmed from the very early church, from the infant church all the way through to this day. It is John that is, that is proclaiming a new and novel doctrine that he cannot support with Scripture or history. And well, not, no point, one ever tra practiced transubstantiation or consecration, nor had a priesthood requirement of it throughout the book of Acts, throughout the New Testament. But go ahead, that's fine. You too. This is good. You guys are having a lively back and forth, and uh, that's 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 great. Now, uh, John uh, Pistis, this is your third question. Uh, this is number three. Okay. All right. Well, according to Hebrews 10, 10 to 14, it says, and every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet, for by one offering he has perfected 
for all time those who are sanctified. Hebrews 10, uh, 11 through 14. Now, a question is, there's the power of consecrating. Um, I want to read from uh, John O'Brien, Faith of Millions, uh, Reverend T.E. Dillon's uh, Sense of Liberum and Imprimatur by John Francis. And it says this, quote, It is a power greater than that of monarchs and emperors. It is a greater than the saints and angels, greater than that of seraphim and cherubim. Indeed, it's greater than even the power of the Virgin Mary, for which the Blessed Virgin has a human agency by which Christ became incarnate a single time. The priest brings down Christ from heaven and renders him present on our altar at the eternal victim for the sins of man. Not once, but a thousand times, the priests speak, and lo, Christ the eternal and omnipotent God bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. And then further on he says about there, and he says on the altar, uh, it talks about for the priest is and should be another Christ by John O'Brien. And then further down he says, the Christ now offering himself to God by the hands of the priest is the same Christ who is in heaven. So my question is, is the actual uh, priest actually call down Jesus during the Mass in the actual Eucharist, according to what this says here? Well, there's a lot to your question there, but I'll answer it very, very directly. We do believe the same as you do, that there's one sacrifice. The question is not the sacrifice. The question is the offering of the sacrifice. It is the offering of the sacrifice that is perpetual. And that is what Malachi tells us. The prophet Malachi tells us that from the rising to the setting of the sun, there will be a perfect sacrifice offered daily. Okay? Well, in, in your church, where is the perfect sacrifice that's offered daily? Now, it is the one-time sacrifice of Christ, but it's offered daily. It's no coincidence that the multiplication of fish and loaves is shown before the bread of life discourse. It's shown as a typology. It's shown as an example. The sacrifice is multiplied. It is represented. Is Christ re-sacrificed on the altar? No. The sacrifice is represented. Okay, well, that's not what, according to these people, said. The priest actually calls Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altar as the eternal victim of the sins of man. So yeah. you're, you're just saying what they're not saying. No. You're contradicting what you're saying. No, 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 no. No, you're reading something in, in, in there that doesn't exist because it, the, Jesus being called down from heaven is one thing. Jesus being re-sacrificed is something else. You're trying to imply that it was a reintroduction of the Old Testament sacrifice that, as you correctly pointed out, saved no one. Because the Old Testament sacrifice was a typology. No one was ever saved by the blood of rams or goats. It was a typology. It pointed forward to the perfect sacrifice of Christ. I pointed this out earlier. The people of the Old Testament were not saved by blood, the blood of rams and goats. They were saved by their participation in the sacrifice of Christ by faith. They were grafted in just as the people of today are grafted in to the one sacrifice of Christ. And how is that accomplished? It is accomplished by the Eucharist, by the perpetual offering. So, John, so the contradiction, uh, that's uh, about an offering. Okay, go ahead. No, no, John, no, John, I was just asking if you wanted to, uh, if you had wanted to respond to what John was just saying. No, I'm just saying again, the scripture is clear. It's by one offering has been perfected all times. Those are sanctified. And again, no. the priest is called no, John. thousands John. of times John. a day. John, what, what John, says there, so show me where it says one offering. Show me where it says one offering. You're putting into Scripture what is not there. Hebrews it says 10. one sacrifice. It says, read it. Hebrews 10, read verse 14. Read it. For by Hold one on, offering. For by one it's, offering. By one sacrifice. 
There's one no, sacrifice. By one the offering, offering is 10:14. For by one offering he has perfected all times. Those who are sanctified. I'm, I'm reading from the Bible. Okay. Give, give, give me the give me the citation again. Hebrews 10 verse 14. Okay. For by one oblation he hath perfected for even them that are sanctified. An oblation is a, is a sacrifice. It no, is by one sacrifice. I don't know what Bible you're using, but it's, it's not. Which, which version are you using? What... Which version are you using? Let me check it here. Okay. Let me go up to verse 8. Let me go up to verse 8. In 74... In saying before, sacrifices and oblations and holocaust for sin, thou wouldest not, neither are they pleasing to thee, which are offered according to the law. Here it is making a very clear distinction between a sacrifice or oblation and an offering. So uh, you're going to have to go take that up with King James because he got it wrong. It is very, very clear that an oblation and an offering are two different things. But this, this is going to be, again, well, one of these... Well, verse 12, it says, but he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. Again, exactly. it's the premise of Exactly, wrong. one it's sacrifice. No, it's In one sacrifice. Ver- no. Verse 12 because says one sacrifice. Think about this, John. Think about this, John. Why did he use sacrifice again in verse 14? No, it says it's a different Greek word for by one offering. It's different words. So. Okay. What this, is be another, this, is, this is going to be another. This is this is going to be one of those uh, fun open questions that you you two are just not going to agree with. So, uh, John, no, Pistis, uh, let's mean, go to your fourth. Let's go to your fourth question, and because I mean we could spend all day on this one. Wait a minute, I think it's isn't it time for my third question, or have I lost track here? Oh, I thought that you did ask the third question. No, I think John's asked three. I've asked two. Okay, go for it. Okay, John. John, when you speak to Catholics about how you believe certain Catholic teachings oppose Scripture, how do you suppose that you have any credibility when here you are opposing the very clear words of the New Testament? Um, first of all, I do not oppose. I, I stand on the Scriptures alone. Uh, the Roman Catholicism stands on and elevates the uh, traditions of man and the magisterium to be equal to the Word of God. As myself, I stand on the Scriptures alone because... For as mom concerned, it, it is the eyewitnesses again, those who were called in, uh, by revelation, divinely inspired writers of, of the New Testament. And besides that, of course, they were all Jews, and the Old Testament was, of course, their present at the time was already there. So, uh, you know, that's what they quoted. That's what they used. That's what they, Jesus used three times when he was tempted in the desert. He quoted Scripture, for it is written. Also, throughout the New Testament, Apostle Paul, Peter, everyone quoted the Testament of the Old Testament that they had at the time. So I'm standing on the word of truth as the foundation of the true church that, that Jesus founded as the head, even as a Peter and wrote through that, that he was the chief cornerstone. So uh, I'm forgetting the question, but basically I stand on, again, on the word of truth because, again, it was the only uh, valid uh, foundation that we have. When we try to add things or take things away, there has to be a standard. And so my standard is 
on the truth of God's Word because that's where we have to go. If we don't have a standard, then basically we can allow people, even a hundred years after, like Jerome and other Ignatius and those people, they can start bringing things up because that's a long time. I mean, we don't even live, the average person lives to 70, 80 years old, but we're talking, you know, a hundred years later, decades and decades of that, that things can be added in and taken in wrongly, and the demons and devils, they sure know how to mislead and, and, and deceive and bring in other doctrines and false doctrines and doctrines traditions of men. But again, Jesus rebuked in Matthew 23 of those people who, who emphasize the Pharisees, the spirit of the Pharisee, which is basically saying, you know, you, 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 you're upholding doctrines of men, traditions of men more than the Word of God, what they had at the time with the Old Testament. So, Moderator, again... Is he going to filibuster all day long here? Or do I, get, I, I thought it was two minutes. minutes. I'm, giving, I'm giving you a chance to respond, John. Go ahead. Look, what he's going on and on and on and on. He's saying the same thing over and over again. But here he does not address the question. He clearly stands four square against the clear and unambiguous words of Scripture in John 6 and 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. He says he stands by Scripture alone. Here he's directly contradicting Scripture. We don't need to talk about Jerome or any of these other people uh, elevating their own teachings above uh, above Scripture, because that's exactly what John Pistis is doing right here. Jesus says, when did they you, eat unless him, you, John? When did they eat him? When did they eat Jesus? When? The first time was at the Last Supper, John. We've been over this. Okay. Jesus says, so, this is my body. Are you calling him a liar? Jesus says, this is my yet? body. Okay. What? Hold on. Time out. The officials call. Uh, <laughs> You guys, you guys are going. You know, this is good. I love the the uh, enthusiasm. Right. Well, you guys are time passionate about both sides. But time we got, for his we fourth question. We got, yeah, we got to go for uh, John. Go ahead and give your, I mean, John Pistis. <laughs> There's two Johns here. Uh, John Pistis, go ahead and give your fourth question, and uh, I'm sure it's going to be lively, which is good. This this is this is an outstanding debate. I think both of you guys are really presenting both your points. Okay, so John, go ahead. Okay. Let me, uh, just bear, bear with me a second. Okay. Uh, question is, is this. What has more credibility to you, John, Franco? Do you, what has more credibility? Is it the eyewitnesses, those who are physically and literally with Jesus Christ, or the early Christian fathers who came after, well after Jesus Christ. What is more credible to you? What What is your standard of, of truth for you, John? My opponent has just committed the logical fallacy known as the false dichotomy, it's a, or a false dilemma, where there's only two, uh, two alternatives given to a question where there's actually more than than two answers. The perfect example of the false dichotomy is, have you stopped beating your wife yet? Uh, to answer his question, Jesus says to this church, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He also said, he who hears you, hears me. Okay, so the contradiction that he supposes between the church fathers and the scriptures does not exist. But the reason why he must imply that it does exist, or state that it does exist, is brought out in this debate tonight because his teaching so clearly contradicts the clear and ambiguous words of Scripture that he must make an appeal to the early church fathers getting it wrong. 
He must say, well, the early church fathers had it wrong. That's not what Scripture teaches. You, when we talk about the church or what the apostles said, what the Scriptures say, they're one and the same. And this is the church that gave us the Bible. Every book of the New Testament is about Catholics, by Catholics, and for Catholics. But more than that, all of the early church fathers affirm everything that we teach, and that's what's driving him crazy. What's driving him crazy is that he's losing this debate on both counts. He's losing it biblically and historically. John, you want to respond? Yes. Uh, John has basically a lot of opinions and personal attacks, but uh, basically uh, I, I backed up again. As my premise was he didn't answer questions. Is, you know, which one do you have more credible? He didn't answer my question. Is it those who are with Jesus Christ or not? And I personally believe more credibly are those who are physically, literally taught by Jesus, the apostles, the disciples, disciples, the followers of Christ. They should have definitely, over anything else, we should have more, give more credibility to those and what they've said and what they, what they recorded for us as the foundation of the churches on those apostles that were with Jesus Christ. And again, uh, to just dismiss that is just, as far as I'm concerned, is, is almost uh, her heretical. You know, the fact Donald. that we can we put more weight upon John. early Christian church. But I'm not saying early church fathers had anything wrong. There were many who were outstanding. But then he says that also that, uh, you know, that, oh, they were in agreement. But there are many contradictions that are, are not for this debate. But again, like I said, the premise of transubstantiation tonight, there was never anything declared for a, a requirement of a priestly requirement to consecrate, nor to actually have an actual change of substance. In 1 Corinthians 10, I pre that, it still remained bread. And again, it still remained bread in John 6. And it continued, and those who, who had no spiritual discernment, who were under the law, who continued to believe that, you know, they knew better to not eat the blood, because you knew a perpetual uh, law by God that you never eat the blood of the sacrament, they walked away not understanding he was speaking spiritually. Thank you. John, you wanted to respond to that? Yeah, he just told two lies, and I, I need to call him out on the two lies. First of all, the first lie, he says, I didn't answer the question. I did answer the question. I said his question was a false dichotomy. When He he, he says, do I elevate the church? Okay, it is an answer. Your question is like if you ask me if I'd stop beating my wife. I'm not going to answer that question. Oh, yes I asked no. you what has more credibility to you. What's more credible? I'm, I'm telling you. It's a, it's a it's a false dichotomy. I'm not going to make that church. When you ask me whether the church or the scriptures so have more answer. because okay, it's a this... false it's a false dichotomy. The second lie that he told is he says that I've engaged in personal attacks tonight. I've engaged in no personal attacks tonight. I've treated him completely with respect. I've gone after his arguments. I've gone after the the arguments that he's made and 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 where he stands. I have made no personal attacks against him. I've been totally well, I'm saying I, I'm going to cut back in here because I think that both of you have been showing a lot of passion, and I think that both of you uh, are presenting your, your positions, and so that's what's going to come out loud and clear. And so, John, it is time for your fourth and final question, okay. and once this question is con uh, completed, then we will commit, we will do our last and final uh, uh, commercial break. And when we okay. come back from that, then you will have each three minutes to uh, uh, present, uh, you know, finalize your points, and okay. then if we have any callers. So, John, go ahead and ask your last question. All right. At, at, at the risk of sounding redundant, John, Jesus said, quote, he who does not eat my flesh and drink my blood has no life in him, close quote. How can you say that you are alive in Christ 
when he is clearly saying that you're not? Again, he is basically talking, again, he explains it. Because many people, again, many of the Jewish at the time, were, 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 were like shocked. Like, what are you saying? You know, we don't understand this. And that's exactly what they, what they did. They didn't understand it. Because he didn't stop passing on an arm or his leg. He just started doing those things. He didn't even go to the cross yet. How can, the fact is that he was, this was the Passover before he went to the cross. And so according to the Jewish uh, law and the other thing of the sacrificial laws and everything in Leviticus and the priesthood, they had to literally, you know, drain the blood, take the blood and made an offering by the high priest, and then they would cook the lamb or whatever animal, cook it and they would eat it. And, you know, and, and so, but they didn't do that physically. And that, that's the issue here. Jesus was using terms just like a, typically, like he said, when it, when he literally said that, you know, whoever sins, I cause you sin, pluck your eye out or cut your hand off. And so it's basically the same thing. You say, oh, well, no, it's not. But, but, but in reality, that's cannibalism. So, you know, you can't, you, you can't look at this. And, and, and Jesus, through the whole scripture, used these type of typologies and different things throughout the word. Old Testament, New Testament, prophetic words. And again, for someone to actually do that, and then for not one apostle, one disciple, not one New Testament church of all the different churches that Apostle Paul wrote to, and everything else to Peter, not one of the apostles ever said, hey, by the way, make sure you got a priest, make sure that he consecrates it, make sure that, you know, it actually changes, this is physically changes, actual change of substance, as per the Catholic Catechism, paragraph 1376, reaffirming what was written in the Council of Trent. So that's that's the answer I have. Thank you. John, you want to respond to that? Yeah, my opponent's just being silly here. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that you must read the 66 books of the Bible, 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 yeah. books of the New right. Testament. And by, the, and by the way, this is the order that they'll be in. My opponent's just being silly. His arguments are, are, are silly. He clearly does not want to confront the clear and unambiguous words of the text. Jesus let all those uh, disciples walk away. Paul understood very clearly what Jesus is saying. And in my closing remark, I'm going to show that the early church understood very, very clearly what Jesus is saying. He just, my opponent just simply does not have a leg to stand on in this, either historically or biblically. Uh, he's looking for, I, I mean, what he's doing is moving the goalposts. Well, you need to show me specifically where there was a mass, where a priest said that we're going to uh, change the bread and wine. I, I mean, it's just... It's just ridiculous. He keeps moving the goalposts and moving the goalposts. But the words of Scripture are clear, unambiguous, and inescapable. He has not tried to deal with the text. He tries to turn it into a metaphor when there's absolutely no room for a metaphor. And uh, and that's all I have to say on it. John, you want to comment on that one last time? I think we got a moment if you want to respond. Sure. Again, uh, back to the same premise. You know, I understand Scripture quite well. I've studied it for many years, and I know exactly what he was doing, Jesus. And again, throughout the Scripture, like the man that came down from heaven, Jesus now came and was going to the cross. He was saying that this is the body, meaning that his body was going. He was speaking spiritually, John 6:63. Again, many did not understand that he was talking about a spiritual, that he came down as the... You, and in John 4, Jesus said, you must worship him in spirit and in truth. Truth of the word God and in spirit of the Holy Spirit. So, so he was talking metaphor. He was talking spiritually. And again, they didn't pass out his body, his leg. They didn't literally eat him at all. That was not what they did according to this was a new covenant in his blood. And that's why it was about the blood. It wasn't about eating just as the Passover back in Exodus. It was about the blood on the doorpost that the angel of death saw and was passed over that family. 
All right. Well, that definitely ends the uh, back and forth uh, debate, and I want to personally thank both of you for uh, presenting a very lively debate, both sides. And so we will commit our uh, go to our third commercial break, and when we come back, John Pistis will have three minutes to give his closing remark. We truly hope you are enjoying this debate on Deeper Truth Internet Radio. To learn more about Deeper Truth Internet Radio and all of the things that we do, go to our website at deepertruthblog.com. That's deepertruthblog.com. We'd like to hear your feedback on how you think the debate arguments were presented. Please email us at email at deepertruthblog.com. That's email at deepertruthblog.com. Thank you. Our family is made up of every race. We are young and old, rich and poor, men and women, sinners and saints. Our family has spanned the centuries and the globe. With God's grace, we started hospitals to care for the sick. We establish orphanages and help the poor. We are the largest charitable organization on the planet, bringing relief and comfort to those in need. We educate more children than any other scholarly or religious institution. We developed the scientific method and laws of evidence. We founded the college system. We defend the dignity of all human life and uphold marriage and family. Cities were named after our revered saints who navigated a sacred path before us. Guided by the Holy Spirit, we compiled the Bible. We are transformed by sacred scripture and sacred tradition, which have consistently guided us for 2,000 years. We are the Catholic Church. With over one billion in our family, sharing in the sacraments and fullness of the Christian faith, for centuries we have prayed for you and our world, every hour of every day, whenever we celebrate the Mass. Jesus himself laid the foundation for our faith when he said to Peter, the first pope, You are rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. For over 2,000 years, we've had an unbroken line of shepherds guiding the Catholic Church with love and truth in a confused and hurting world. And in this world filled with chaos, hardship, and pain, it's comforting to know that some things remain consistent, true, and strong, our Catholic faith and the eternal love that God has for all creation. If you've been away from the Catholic Church, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. Ours is one family, united in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We are Catholic. Welcome home. Someone you know needs a website or website hosting, then the place to go is DTBWebServices.com. That's DTBWebServices.com, a sponsor of the Deeper Truth Show.
All right. For next up on the uh, uh, mantle here is uh, John Pistis. And before I bring you on, John, I just wanted to say thank you so much for a great, lively debate. On you know, you you, you uh, really put a lot of heart and and I really appreciate and thank you for for uh, what you uh, presented tonight. I think you presented yourself. So you have three minutes to give your closing remarks, and then once you're done, then. John Baker will have three minutes. All right, John, let me know when you are ready to go. Um, okay, I am ready to go. Okay, so three, two, one, go. Thank you uh, for this uh, debate, and I just wanted to say that, you know, as, as again, I was a Roman Catholic who I was for close to 40 years. I do understand uh, Roman Catholicism, the doctrine, dogma, and I've researched it intensively, uh, these issues, uh, and many, many other issues that are not covered in this debate, and I would have never left Roman Catholicism if I was not sure beyond any doubt of these issues as I researched the scriptures, studied theology, working toward my doctorate degree, and I would have never left uh, in the year 2000, leaving Roman Catholicism, if I knew for sure that uh, that the issues that I've looked at were, were you know, that I need to stand on the Word of God alone. My, uh, I don't want to say opponent, which he uses, but John Venkel has proved it failed me to answer the question of the, the fact that, you know, what has more credibility, you know, people today or those who are with Jesus? Well, I think it's, it, it, it's an easy answer, and it's to say and to admit that the credibility of the apostles, who with Jesus Christ, have definitely more credibility and more weight when it comes to morals, faith, and values, and, and the significances of Scripture as it has been written by them, recorded for us for these centuries later to look at and to use as the standard. Roman Catholicism relies heavily, and I've seen it through many debates on Facebook and elsewhere, rely heavily on early Christian fathers and these people that have invented, for lack of a better word, these doctrines, including transubstantiation and other things, that are not biblically based. Again, Jesus used these words to be harsh in the understanding that he was the man, and throughout John 6, you, you can circle the words how many times Jesus said about believing, and throughout the premise of Scripture and the, the, the way it's, 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 it's written out, the premise is you must believe, you're saved by grace through faith, not a worse than any man should boast, it is a gift of God, and that gift came down, went to the cross after the Passover setter, and he shed his blood for the remission of sins. No one ate him. No one ever partook him right there at the table. He didn't pass out a leg, didn't pass out an arm. It was very spiritual at that point, and it still remains spiritual, and we remember it. I participate in the Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, quite often, as he says, to remember what he did on the cross. It points to the cross. Not about eating his body and drinking his blood. That wasn't what it was about. It was about him going to the cross, shedding his blood, the remission of sin, by that new covenant in the blood. It was the blood that the angel went and passed over during the Exodus Passover. It was not about eating the lamb. They are to eat it, but it was about the blood the angel saw. And that's what basically saved them, and it was all about the blood. Many didn't walk away and didn't believe, but those who understood him spiritually, those are the end part of the spiritual kingdom of God. Thank you. All right. Thank you there, John. And now as we prepare for John Banco to for his uh, three-minute statement, John, I also want to say thank you for uh, your participation tonight, very lively. And I know that uh, both of you uh, were strong in what you believe. And so 
um, I'm thankful to you as well. And so, John, are you about ready for your three minutes? Well, before I get to my closing statement, I also want to thank uh, John for his participation in this uh, in this debate tonight. Uh, I got to be honest; I did not find his uh, arguments particularly um, uh, compelling um, or scriptural uh, by any standard. But I do appreciate his passion and um, and if he got any idea that I treat, uh, treated him with disrespect, well, I'll go back and I'll re-listen to this and I'll. Uh, I'll evaluate myself to uh, make sure that that doesn't happen uh, again in the future. But again, want to thank thank him for his participation in the debate, and um, would look forward to uh, future debates with him if uh, if he is so interested. And uh, yes, I am now ready for my closing statement. Well, before you do that, I just want to make one last closing remark for myself as the moderator. I didn't see where there were personal attacks on either person. I, I mean, I saw that you were going after the positions that each other made and that was something that's that's what a debate is that's what you do in debate so i thought that both of you were going at the issues and you were both very lively about it so that's what i was thinking i thank both okay. of you for that participation so you ready yep five four three two one go in the initial discussions for this debate, my opponent expressed his strong desire that the early church fathers be excluded from this debate in favor of a, quote, Bible alone, close quote, approach. The problem with such an approach is that the fathers of the church and the men who wrote, translated, and canonized the New Testament were one and the same. No amount of historical revisionism can change that. St. John Newman once said that to be steeped in history is to cease to be a Protestant. Truer words were never spoken. My opponent tonight could not make his case biblically unless he equivocated and twisted the passages to his liking and duped you into thinking that his novel interpretations were held by the early church. History is not kind to his new and different gospel. St. Arrhenius of Lyons, he took from among creations that which is bread and gave thanks, saying, this is my body, the cup likewise is from the creation to which we belong. He confessed to be his blood. Tertullian. Likewise, in regard to the days of fast, men do not think they should be present at the sacrificial prayers because their fast would be broken. If they were to receive the body of the Lord, the body of the Lord having been received and reserved, each point is secured both in the participation in the sacrifice, close quote. Origen, you see how the altars are no longer sprinkled with blood of oxen, but consecrated by the precious blood of Christ. St. Clement of Alexandria, calling her children about her, she, the church, nourishes them with holy milk, that is, with the infant word. The word is everything to a child, both father and mother, both instructor and nurse. Eat my flesh, he says, and drink my blood. The Lord supplies us with these intimate nutrients. He delivers over his flesh and pours out his blood, and nothing is lacking for the growth of his children. Oh, incredible mystery. St. Cyprian of Carthage. And we ask that this bread be given us daily so that we who are in Christ and daily receive the Eucharist as the food of salvation may not be falling into some more grievous sin than in abstaining from communicating, being withheld from the heavenly bread and separated from Christ's body. We actually have far more of these quotes in our show notes at deepertruthblog.com. The point is this, and there is no escaping it. Jesus' words on this matter are literal. Paul's words on this matter are literal. The apostles took them literally, the Jews took them literally, and there can be no dispute that the early church took them literally. 
My opponent has absolutely no case here. This is settled, infallible, and foundational Christian doctrine. This concludes my closing statement. All right, and with that, that uh, concludes the debate. And so I want to thank both John Pistis and John Banco for a great, lively debate tonight, one that we will be able to take a look at and, uh, and to be able to uh, eat through, and I appreciate it. And I want to thank all of those out there listening in tonight. And I'm sorry that we weren't able to take calls tonight because well, I did let it go a little bit as far as the question and answer, but I thought that that was worthwhile. I thought it was a great debate. And so with that, uh, John, I want to bring you on back on more. The, the debate is over. But uh, do you have anything that uh, you want to say in reference to anything coming up in the, uh, the near future on Deeper Truth? Well, that would be up to uh, that would be up to John. Um, I will uh, e- extend the uh, the invitation uh, to him. Um, uh, obviously, from my perspective, uh, you know, our side won this debate clear and in an overwhelming fashion. But he probably, if you asked him, probably would have a different conclusion. But uh, after uh, sometime tomorrow, I'll uh, send him a message and extend him the invitation uh, if he wants to debate on further topics and. Uh, And we'll see what he says. All right. Well, then, well, with that in mind, I want to, we, this particular next week, we got a a conference in Springfield, Missouri. And so uh, a lot of us uh, will be up there for that. And I do want to encourage everyone, if you're in the Springfield, Missouri area, Ozark, Missouri, to come to the, uh, uh, the Catholic Church there for the conference. It's going to be great. So, uh, for John and for all the deeper truth, for John Pistis and John Banco, and for all the deeper truth and all of those out there listening, y'all have a good night and God bless.
mercy. 